0: Uh, My primary focus are the children and youth uh, of our church there. Uh, It's a delight and a a joy to be here with you this morning uh, as we open God's Word. Uh, If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them uh, to the book of of Luke, chapter 18. Uh, We're going to be going through uh, verses 1 through 8 uh, this morning. Uh, It's an honor to be asked by Kyle to fill in. Uh, And Les, I'm getting to know Les more and more as he and I serve on uh, the same committee in our presbytery. And so it's a joy to be with you uh, here this morning. Let's begin. Waiting is hard, isn't it? Kids, what's it like to wait in line uh, to go out for recess? Teens, what's it like to wait for your best friend to arrive uh, so that you can hang out together? Adults, What's it like to wait for the repairman to show up in the time slot when he said he'd come, especially after you left for work? You want to make sure that he's there on time. What's it like when you get there and he doesn't arrive on time? Or how is the wait for the thing coming in the Amazon package you ordered that is now delayed? I don't know about you, but I hate waiting so much in an intersection that I find myself speeding up when the light turns yellow. Or even reddish sometimes, so I don't have to wait that extra two to three minutes. I live close to Lincoln Southeast High School. Recently, a van stalled leading up to the roundabout in front of our house just before school started. And there was a long backup of cars. Within a few seconds of waiting, a vehicle ten cars back jumped the curve, drove up on the grass of the median, around all the vehicles, around the stalled van, then jumped back onto the, onto the street. You might be surprised to know it wasn't so he could get up and help push the stalled van out of the way. No, he just wanted to didn't want to wait at all, and he sped off and peeled his tires just to show everyone his, uh, his disapproval for having to wait. Now, these are easy examples to show us how hard waiting can be. What about the hard ones? Like when you and your spouse have been trying to have a child for a long time, And it's just not happening. I remember how hard it was for my wife Kathy and I to have decided to start our family through adoption before having biological kids. Year after year we waited and the, the bank account just didn't seem to be making much progress to getting us to a place where we could adopt. We were married nine years before my son Gideon joined our family from Ethiopia. Waiting was brutal. For some of you, you are waiting for grown children who you raised in the church to love Jesus. They've walked away from Jesus and the church and won't listen to your pleadings and arguments to return. Some of you have been waiting for decades. Brutal. For others, you have hard work situations. You just want to do your job, but your boss has it out for you and won't give you a break and time doesn't seem to be doing anything to help. Waiting is hard. Waiting can be particularly hard when we are mistreated by others. Life can become unbearable and intolerable when we are mistreated by parents, or our spouse, or our kids, our friends, our co-workers, our employers, and in our parable today, our enemies. And more and more, those who follow Christ are being mistreated socially because of their faith in Jesus. So I ask of you today, when has there been a time in your life when you have experienced mistreatment by someone? Maybe it's in your past. Maybe you're living it right now. Being mistreated is hard, isn't it? Especially when it's ongoing. Especially when you've tried to stop it And it won't. I believe that as believers we are prone to discouragement and despair when we experience ongoing mistreatment. We do our best to turn the other cheek. We decide to love those who mistreat us and pray for them. We try to talk with our adversary in order to get them to stop mistreating us. When that doesn't work, we distance ourselves and do everything we can to avoid them. But in the end, when the mistreatment doesn't stop, We throw up our hands in discouragement and despair, and we give up. The original audience of Luke's gospel was prone to this discouragement and despair too. Just prior to our verses this morning, if you've got your Bible open, you can kind of skim as I go through these verses, Luke writes down Jesus' words about when the kingdom of God would finally come. If you skim along Luke 17, 20 through 37 you'll see that Jesus tells the Pharisees that the kingdom of God is in the midst of them. Meaning when Jesus came in the flesh, the kingdom of God did too. After answering the Pharisees, Jesus pulls his disciples together and explains to them that when he returns from heaven, that's when the kingdom of God will be consummated or will come into complete reality and that that will happen when they aren't expecting it. It'll happen when they're going about their everyday lives, like in the days of Noah when the flood came, or in the days of Lot when fire and sulfur rained down from heaven. Jesus tells them that he will return and consummate the kingdom of God at the blink of an eye. He wants them to always be ready for Jesus' return because it will come without warning, and it'll be huge, and no one will miss it. This is what Jesus said to his audience in the verses preceding ours this morning. But to Theophilus, who Luke wrote his gospel account for, and the rest of Luke's original audience, Jesus had spoken these words a minimum of 30 to 40 years before. And Jesus hadn't yet returned. His kingdom still wasn't consummated. That meant the kingdom of God wasn't fully realized. Everything wasn't perfect Sin was still present, and life was still hard. This made believing in Jesus and situating one's life around him hard. And not just that. There were lots of people, parents, spouses, children, friends, co-workers, employers, and enemies who mistreated Christ's followers. Everything wasn't rainbows and unicorns. So when Jesus' disciples and Luke's audience and even us today experience mistreatment, what is to be done? And how does the believer not fall into discouragement and despair when that mistreatment continues? Jesus tells them then and us today the answer through the parable of the persistent widow. By way of uh, brief reminder, a parable is a short story or saying that illustrates the truth using comparison or hyperbole or simile. Jesus loves parables. Over one-third of Jesus' instruction was done by parables. A parable makes somebody lean in and listen. It's often something that needs to be chewed on for a while. And in today's passage, Jesus, uncharacteristic of what he does in most of his parables, says exactly what the parable means. So our big idea for this morning, as you see in your bulletin, is Jesus calls us to a lifestyle of persistent prayer as we wait for his return. And just to situate us in this idea of the kingdom of God, and specifically Jesus consummating the kingdom of God, let me remind you that the storyline of the entire Bible begins in the Garden of Eden, comes to its climax in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and culminates in his return. When Jesus returns, he will bring his redemptive work to consummate reality and will usher in the new heavens and the new earth. So let's read the parable of the persistent widow together, pray, and dig in. So Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And this is the word of the Lord. Uh, Would you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, here's where we're headed today. Uh, I want to explain the parable to the 30,000-foot view, then we'll focus on the unjust judge, the persistent widow, and then bring it home by thinking about how we might apply this to our lives. Sound good? Let's go. First, the 30,000-foot view of the parable. Unlike most of his parables, Jesus comes right out and tells the meaning of the parable. Verse 1 says, And Jesus told them this parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. As believers await the consummation of the kingdom, they are to persistently pray and not lose heart. And Jesus, to illustrate this, tells them this parable. Essentially, in some random town, there lived a judge. And a widow. Some mistreatment or injustice has happened, or more precisely, is continuing to happen to the widow. In order to get the mistreatment to stop, the widow keeps coming to the judge in this random town to get the mistreatment from her adversary to stop by the judge giving her justice. The judge, who doesn't give a rip about the woman or about what others think of him, refuses to give her the justice she deserves. However, after a while, the judge gets sick of the woman's persistent coming to him for justice. And so, to get her to stop, gives her what she wants, because he wants to be done with her. And that, friends, is the story Jesus uses to teach his disciples to always pray and not lose heart. Seems like a weird story to encourage his disciples to not get discouraged and not to fall into despair when they experience mistreatment as they wait for him to return. So let's zoom in a bit, taking a look at the unjust judge and the persistent widow, and see what Jesus is trying to show us here. So second, the unjust judge. The judge is a scoundrel. Verse 2 tells us he neither fears God nor respects man. This is in direct contrast to what God expects from his judges. Look at what God says to and about judges from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6.13 says this, It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and uh, and by his name you shall swear. That's in stark contrast to what the judge says about himself. When God says, it is the Lord your God you shall fear, the judge says here in verse 2, I neither fear God nor respect man. Now, I know you were all waiting for this. Listen to what God says in Leviticus 19.15. I know everyone's just waiting to get into Leviticus. Here's what Leviticus 19.15 says. Judges. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Again, notice the stark contrast between what God says and what the judge is doing. Where God says not to do injustice in the court, not to show partiality to the poor or deference to the rich, but shall judge one's neighbor in righteousness, we see the judge carrying out injustice by not deciding on the widow's behalf. We see him giving partiality, in this case to the widow's adversary, and we see him choosing unrighteousness regarding the widow's situation. So it's clear he doesn't respect others. From his own words and behavior, we see that he isn't lying when he says he doesn't care about God or respect his neighbor. What a scoundrel! It gets worse. Verse 4. When the widow continues coming to him to get justice, he refuses. He uses his power and position to thwart the very thing he's supposed to do, namely to establish justice where it isn't. The widow comes repeatedly for justice, and he repeatedly refuses to give it. So we see, we see that he's a, a stubborn scoundrel to boot. Then in verses 4-5, through he decides to give her justice after all. We might ask, is he having a change of heart? Is he finally coming to his senses? The text doesn't say that at all. It wasn't because he came to his senses. It wasn't even because he believed her and finally did the right thing. Instead, he gives her justice because of her annoying persistence. He knows the widow will not stop. Ever, Where the ESV translates the word, beat me down, and the NASV and NIV translate, wear me down, the more literal translation of the verb used here means to give a black eye. The judge is so afraid that the widow will continue to persist that she will ratchet up her annoyance and either metaphorically or physically beat him down. So he caves. And gives her the justice she deserves in order to be done with her. What a scoundrel. And that, friends, is the parable that Jesus uses to help us always pray and not lose heart when we experience mistreatment as we wait for Jesus to return. We'll have to unpack that further in a bit as it seems weird and wrong to equate God with this unjust judge. But let's parking lot the judge now and turn to the widow. So third, the persistent widow. What do we learn about her that might help us? Verse 3 tells us that she lives in the same city as the unjust judge. We learn that while she is being refused justice, she kept coming to the judge seeking justice from her adversary. The word adversary means one who is continuously antagonistic to another. This tells us that the injustice she is experiencing isn't a one-time event, but it's an ongoing situation. While her adversary is in the wrong, he is able to continually antagonize her because the unjust judge refuses to intervene. And as a widow, she is one of the most vulnerable people in the city, and more often than not has no one to help her or protect her, and has very little resources. The only tool at her disposal is her persistence. And she's had it with the adversary and the judge. So using her tool of persistence, she is just going to wear the judge down until he relents and gives her the justice that she deserves. And that's what she does in time. Because she is so persistent, she finally wears him down. He gives in and he gives her what she wants in order to get rid of her. She's a bulldog. She is persistent, assertive, and won't quit, ever. Not until she gets what she wants, what is right, and what is deserved. Jesus uses the widow as the picture to help believers always pray and not lose heart when they are mistreated, as they wait for him to return. He elevates her persistence and her unwillingness to quit. He uses her as an example of the type of attitude and behavior he desires from his followers to have regarding prayer when they experience mistreatment and injustice and difficulty. But doesn't that sound a little bit weird and wrong? If Jesus is trying to teach us that we're always to pray and not lose heart, why this story? Kind of seems like a swing and a miss on Jesus' part. Why portray God the way Jesus does, as an unjust judge? Many believers already feel like God acts like the unjust judge, only giving them what they want after they wear him down, after they annoy him enough that he will give in and reluctantly give them what is deserved. There's just something about this parable that just doesn't feel right. It doesn't sit well with us, and I don't think it should. Until we stop and think about it and see what Jesus is actually doing and saying here, I think we'll come away with some not so good conclusions. So, if we take this parable at face value, here's what I think we can hear. When you're mistreated and turn to God in prayer, just be more persistent, be unwilling to quit. Ever keep badgering God, the unjust judge, until he relents and begrudgingly gives it to you. And always remember, God gives you this justice, not because he cares about you, but because he sees you as an annoyance and because of your persistent request for him to do what he's supposed to do. The validity of your concern that you keep bringing to him it doesn't really matter to him. All he really wants to do is to be done with you. If you just wear him down, you'll win the day. Then finally, the mistreatment will stop. And he can get back to doing whatever it was he was doing before you barged in with your annoying, time consuming prayers. Is that what Jesus is trying to say in this parable as he's attempting to give us to get us to always pray and to not lose heart? It doesn't make sense why Jesus would tie in our need to be people of persistent prayer as we wait for his return, especially when we are experiencing ongoing mistreatment with a God who acts like a self-centered judge, who will only act on our behalf after we wear him down. Frankly, spending time and eternity with a God like that doesn't sound like something we're all that interested in. Not only does that not sound like how God reveals himself throughout Scripture, but it sounds demoralizing. It sounds discouraging. And it will undoubtedly lead to despair. And the feelings of discouragement and despair, those are the very things Jesus is fighting against in our verses today. So what's going on here? What is Jesus trying to do here? I think that we can understand and uh, relate more easily to the widow. I think we can get the feeling of powerlessness, the feeling of being overlooked, and like we don't matter, and sometimes annoyingly persistent, but persistently praying to a God who is a jerk, I'm not sure I understand the connection. Friends, these next verses are what makes this parable so beautiful, and I think it will empower us to pray when things are hard and when we experience mistreatment as we await Jesus' return. Jesus' parable of the persistent widow and the unjust judge is using the how-much-more argument. Called an a-fortiori argument, this logical reasoning is arguing from the lesser to the greater This is the if A, then how much more B argument. Let's look at an example from Luke 12, 28. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? So if God provides for grass, which is short-lived and doesn't have great value, how much more will he care for you, who are eternal, And incredibly valuable. This is what Jesus is doing in the parable of the persistent widow. Look at verses 7 and 8. If the unjust judge gives justice to someone he despises, how much more will God, will the God of justice, give justice to those he loves? God is the how much more than the unjust judge in the parable. Whereas the judge gets beat down by the widow's persistence, God welcomes our persistence when we pray. Whereas the unjust judge gives justice reluctantly, God gives it joyfully. Whereas the judge only does it after a long period of time, God doesn't delay. God is encouraging us to pray persistently, to come to him again and again when we are mistreated and when we experience injustice, and when we have things that are deeply burdensome, he will act not because we are an annoying disturbance to him, but because he loves us and loves to act on our behalf. And yet, sometimes we don't understand why God acts in the timing that he has and not ours, or in the way we think we deserve. So, listen to Isaiah 55, 8-9. through nine. God says for my ways are not for my thoughts are not your thoughts neither are your ways my ways declares the lord for as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts god has a plan and it's for our good And there are times when we fight discouragement and despair, especially when we experience mistreatment and injustice. It's in those times when we can choose to believe the false portrayal that God is the unjust judge, or we can believe the true portrayal that God is not only just, but he's also our loving father. The false portrayal will lead us to discouragement and despair. The true portrayal will empower us to pray persistently and not lose heart. And remember, 2 Peter 3, 8-9, through it reminds us, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So, could it be? Could it be that God is delaying his justice in order to give our adversary the opportunity to repent and place their trust in Jesus? Again, God is how much more than the unjust judge? If the unjust judge finally relents and grants the persistent widow's request, How much more will a just God grant the request of his followers who pray to him persistently? See how the how-much-more argument flips the entire parable? God isn't the unjust judge, but the just and loving judge who acts on our behalf of those who are his when they cry out to him day and night. It's in those times of great difficulty when we draw near to the Lord, pouring out our requests and burdens to him, that he aligns our hearts with his, and we not only feel his presence, but also experience his tender care. Listen to James 4, 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Remember, friends, we are not the widow. Yes, we can be powerless and taken advantage of. We can feel like there is no one to protect us. And we do need to learn from the widow that sometimes the only tool we have at our disposal is our persistence. But we are more than that. We don't need to beg and grovel for God to act like the widow did with the unjust judge. Verse 7 tells us that we are God's elect. We aren't some random widow in some random town begging some random judge to act on our behalf. We are God's elect children. Listen to what God says of us in Galatians 4, 4-7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because we are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We are God's elect. Because of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, we are the ones who have responded to his good news. We have repented of our sins and have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. We are the ones who know our need for him, and we are the ones who recognize that our only hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, When we experience times when it feels like God is more of the unjust judge than our loving Father, we need to return to these verses. In them we see the beauty of the how much more about God. But I think we can also say that of the widow. Because of Christ, you are more than the widow. You are God's elect child. We need to remember that too and let that sink into our bones. So when we are... Uh, mistreated, when we're taken advantage of, when we're struggling to keep our eyes on Jesus, and when we are tempted to get discouraged in despair, when the kingdom Jesus promised to bring, the kingdom that we so long for seems so far off, we're called to pray and to pray some more. And then keep praying with persistence. Knowing that the kingdom isn't yet fully functioning the way it will when Jesus comes back and consummates his kingdom. Knowing that in the meantime, we yearn for him to return and make all things new and to bring justice. It's then in that desire, in the midst of our struggles that Jesus calls us, encourages us, challenges us with verse eight, to persevere and to keep praying. In order to remain firmly rooted in the faith until Jesus returns, it is essential for us as God's elect children to have a lifestyle of persistent prayer. The only question is, will we? Will we give evidence of our faith by having a lifestyle of persistent prayer? Will that lifestyle of persistent prayer propel us through times of mistreatment and hardship and injustice, when we are discouraged and on the cusp of despair? Will we engage in prayer in times when we just want to give up? When Jesus returns, verse 8 tells us, he wants to find a praying people. Is that what he will find in us when he returns? A praying people? At the end of the day, the question is not whether our God will be faithful. The question is whether we will be. As we close our time together today, I have found the Lord's Prayer to be of great help to me when it comes to thinking about how to pray when I see and experience mistreatment and injustice. We know that this world doesn't yet function the way God intended. So Jesus, when he taught us to pray, included the section, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that prayer because we want earth to function as it currently does in heaven. We long for all things to be right and beautiful and functional, We long for Jesus to come back and make all things right. It's to that end that we now pray. So will you pray with me? I'll pray first about the sermon, and then we'll join at the end in saying the Lord's Prayer together. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you as your elect children, not as powerless grovelers hoping that you will relent. Lord, we come to you as your elect children who you love and delight in. We come to you as ones who who live in a broken world, in a fallen place where we hunger and we wait for you to return and make all things new. And in the meantime, we experience difficulties and mistreatment and injustice and hardship. And so, Lord, we come to you through Jesus Christ, praying, knowing, Lord, that you will act for justice and you will do it speedily. In the meantime, Lord, help us to be men and women of persistent prayer, seeing you act, waiting for you to act, begging you, Lord, to see our needs and to act in your timing. But Lord, remind us that you are the good father who loves us and delights to act on our behalf for your glory and for our good. Jesus, we thank you for teaching us how to pray. And so together, congregation, let's pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil,